Yeah, light rail just politically has immediate challenges. And and it they are tend to be a longer term project. So if you can achieve the same efficiency without tearing up a road and adding, you know, the infrastructure piece to it, it really starts to look very compelling. Um, and then when you add that electrification component as well, like I could see why if a city is looking at two choices, why why the automated bus looks a lot more attractive and certainly a lot cheaper. Hello and welcome to the Autonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, um, the host of the No Parking Podcast, founder of the Human Driving Association, and director for special operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. And I'm Kirsten Korosek. I just have one title, transportation editor over at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And uh, today we are actually going to be discussing something that um, I have only recently developed more of an appreciation for, uh, in part because uh, I had to make a bunch of materials about it for the PAVE's first public sector education uh uh, workshop, um, but also because um, it, you know I had a, a bit of a foundation to to build on uh, in doing that work because I have been following uh, Mr. Nathaniel Hordam on Twitter for a long time, and this is a topic that he probably knows more than just about anybody I know um, on, and uh, he's not afraid to to provide some spicy takes. You may remember Nathaniel; he was on uh, uh, what, what was it almost two years ago now, over two years ago, uh, talking about. Um, the uh, Uber and Lyft and and sort of the labor market situation. Uh, here we are actually, and and actually it occurs to me, we hadn't planned on this, but we really also don't plan at all. Nathaniel, first of all, welcome to the Atonicast. Um, Thanks, Ed. Wait, guys, can we just simply introduce Nathaniel as one of the handful of smart people on Twitter who, whatever he has to say around transportation, but even other things, he's just a smart guy and he's a good person to have in your newsfeed. Yeah, absolutely. But tell, tell people what your job is, Nathaniel, just so they have some context on this. Thanks, Alex. Uh, thanks, Ed. So I, uh, this is Nathaniel Horodam. I uh, am an automated vehicle specialist and managing consultant at the Center for Transportation and the Environment. We're a national nonprofit headquartered in Atlanta. Uh, we help develop and commercialize uh, zero emission vehicle technologies, clean energy vehicle technologies for medium and heavy duty vehicles. Yeah, so so we brought Nathaniel on to talk about um, transit. Um, we've been seeing a bunch of stuff. Um, I, I keep seeing it again and again. There's this like dichotomy between you know either AVs or transit. Like when it comes to a lot of the discussions around um, around transit funding and and things like that. Um, in fact, there was a a piece I think with the headline. Can't remember if it was in in Slate or something like that. That was like forget AVs, fun fun transit, and um, Stuff that that kind of whole perspective is is super frustrating to me because they're not necessarily different things, right? I mean, like I mean, you you currently work on a, a, a number of of AV transit projects. In fact, there's probably more work going on in automated transit than there is in, you know, AVs for for totally untransit related purposes. At least in terms of projects that will be soon and done in in the short term. Isn't that right? Sure. So um, let me step back and just say there hasn't been uh, in the United States. Traditionally, we have funded transit innovation broadly 
through through federal grant support. And so there haven't been a lot of opportunities as billions of dollars have poured into robo taxis and automating trucks and and even some of these low speed shuttles, which I know kind of sit at the intersection between transit and economic development projects. But uh, there traditionally hasn't been any real funding for for transit automation. Uh, we were lucky to win a project with the Connecticut Department of Transportation through the Integrated Mobility Innovation Grants Program, the Federal Transit Administration. It was a $2 million award. Uh, the Connecticut Department of Transportation is kicking in uh, quite a bit more money than that uh, to work with New Flyer and Robotic Research. And we are uh, building level four automated transit buses that are going to operate on a dedicated guideway between New Britain and Hartford um, in the Hartford, Connecticut region. So it's about a, a nine mile plus dedicated guideway. Um, and once the buses come off, there's about a one mile loop in downtown Hartford uh, where they will not be automated. Uh, you know, we're, we're being very careful about using the level four designation strictly within the operational design domain of that dedicated, not mixed traffic guideway. And then once it moves into mixed traffic, a human operator will take over and drive as normal. I have a important sort of dumb, but important terminology question. Cause you're calling them buses and I tend to say shut you shuttles. And is there, I mean, how large are, the, are these vehicles that you're talking about? And can we use that terminology sort of interchangeably in your world? So it's a great question, and it's uh, honestly somewhat of a frustration of mine because you do see a lot of news stories talking about automated buses when they mean these low-speed 10 to 12-passenger shuttles. Um, you'll also see the terminology used about cutaway shuttles. They'll call them buses, and those are, think of them on a Ford or a GM chassis, uh, a lot of airport shuttles. Um, community type transportation systems. Um, what we're talking about here are 40 foot heavy duty, 30, 25, 30,000 pound buses carrying 40 passengers that you would see normally operating in any major city and fixed route or fixed, uh, yeah, fixed route service. Right. And, and this is like high volume too, which I think, right. So it's, it's mostly, as you were saying, it's it, the automated part in particular is kind of it's inner city essentially. Um, so rather than being sort of within one city, this is largely, is, is that correct, to, to get folks from one, one urban center to another? Uh, exactly. So the way that Connecticut DOT has this, the CT Fast Track is the name of the actual facility, uh, the, the guideway. And it, it operates between a number of suburban cities, um, you know, in the Hartford region. And so it operates as a commuter service, in, in some respect. Um, but I mean, still the bus does a loop downtown. It does capture a lot of urban area. Um, these are the same sorts of buses that you would normally see in urban areas. Um, but this type of service is probably more akin to what you would think of as light rail, uh, covering longer distances, um, but the same sort of passenger capacity, uh, same sort of headways, you know, 10 to 15 minutes in peak hours, if not shorter, um, those sorts of characteristics. Yeah. And what, what about this um, application? Because again, most of the, and we can talk more about sort of low speed shuttles and what's happened there, but this is pretty different than most of the the transit work in, in automation. Um, 
uh, higher volume, longer distances. Um, what was it about this application that was that made it appealing for automation? Yeah, so the fact that it is a dedicated guideway, first of all, means it's the perfect place to start on this vehicle platform. And so, you know, you're seeing talk in the freight space, or you know, you, you've, I think you guys, I don't know if you've done Cavenu Net or Cavenu yet in Michigan. Um, but that sort of application where you're looking at building out dedicated facilities where buses or trucks or cars don't have to interact with human-driven vehicles as being a much easier early use case. Um, some of the other reasons that this was attractive from the uh, operator, the Connecticut Department of Transportation standpoint, was uh, really twofold. One, the fact that there is this big debate in the transit industry between bus rapid transit and light rail. And there are a lot of pros and cons to each one that we don't need to get you know too deep in the weeds on. But the biggest difference between them is capacity. Light rail typically has one conductor at the very front of the vehicle. Bus rapid transit, you can have a 60-foot articulated bus, the bendy buses that you might recognize. In this case, they run those, but they also want to run 40-foot buses. So they, they kind of kill two birds with one stone. One, if they do platooning of buses, which is what we're, we'll be doing here, you can use more smaller vehicles instead of the 60-footers. And that way you get more fleet flexibility or operational flexibility within your fleet. You can sub buses out uh, a lot easier um, over the course of the day. And then the second thing is you're getting the same capacity with platoon buses that you would from light rail with cars, train cars chained together uh, with only one operator. So you've got a driver in the lead vehicle. And then in theory, you wouldn't need anyone in the second or even third vehicles for peak hours where you've got enough riders on the platform you know, to support 100 plus passengers. Without the infrastructure issue that light rail has, right? I mean, that's... Correct. So, so the, big, the, the big benefit of bus over rail is that you don't have to build tracks. It's a lot cheaper um, from a capital costs perspective. The, the big challenge with buses, again, is the fact that um, you know, it, it's more expensive on the operation side because there are more drivers involved typically to meet the same uh, capacity that you would have with light rail. Um, I want to uh, turn to it, the human driven, a uh, human driven, not automated uh, business, which is the on-demand shuttle systems like the vias of the world, because that's been marketed as and sold as um, a way to be also like another efficiency. So first you have moving from light rail to what you're talking about, but then there's this whole idea of how do you get to where people need to be um get into transportation deserts without adding a fixed route bus line. So how does that piece or what is your view on that like on-demand shuttle ridership fit in with sort of what you're doing? Can they play nicely together or do you see the bus route be the fixed route being the first step to eventually being more of that on-demand um, service where you go to the people as opposed to doing that fixed route? So uh, let's step back just a second and let's talk about what we have to do to get these buses working with that level four system. We are still mapping the entire route. So the more coverage area that you want to serve, the more mapping you have to do, the more it doesn't scale so easily. 
So, you know, this is a very specific application. There are obviously underlying technologies, as there are with any other automated driving system uh, on any other vehicle platform uh, that can translate and, you know, whether it's the hardware or the the base software um, that can make the next one easier. But you're still having to program the ADS for a different environment. So fixed route does make sense first. Once you start moving into the on-demand systems, you know, you're still wanting to aggregate ridership demand. And you're seeing this even with Uber and Lyft over time, trying to push people more toward sharing, not because it's so much the marketing perspective of it, but because it is more cost-effective for them if riders will aggregate or congregate in certain areas so that the car doesn't have to make so many stops, take so many turns, look for riders, whatnot. So anytime you're adding in the point-to-point piece, um, true point-to-point transportation, you're adding in complexity, you're adding in cost, you're adding in time cost. And and so that's inherently inefficient. And so, you know, I don't know how far away we are from reaching a point where that's viable, even with these, you know, more on-demand type systems with shuttles or via type services, even in a, in a minivan, they're still going to want aggregation of passengers uh, to make this make financial sense because the automation doesn't save that much cost, um, you know, on, on the operation side to make it that seamless that it, it can do all this stuff all of a sudden once you pull a driver's wages out of the equation. If you can do that. I'm curious, uh, the weather, are you going to run this all four seasons year round? All four seasons. So walk us through the technology and the, that's going to make it possible to operate in the winter during snow. I mean, I've been in Connecticut. I live in the Northeast most of my life. Winters can be tough. So the idea with this system, and I, and I can't get too much into the technical details. Um, I have to leave that to the developers themselves. But the idea being with this deployment that any conditions that a human can operate in, the vehicle or the ADS should be able to operate in as well. So they're not going to suspend the service just because there's a heavy snow. Uh, you know, this is a well-maintained track. They're going to be clearing it. Humans would have the same sorts of difficulties um, in these conditions. And if you know, it's not good enough for humans, it's, that's when we start having issues. And so what are the, uh, I guess, what is the, the operating speed speeds in which you anticipate this is going to run? Uh, that's a great question. We are planning on getting up to 40 miles an hour. So that is the current posted speed limit on this guideway. And we're not 100% sure that it will maintain that speed, um, you know, the entirety of the route. And, you know, we're still working through some of kind of the operational challenges um, you know, if, if the bus gets behind schedule, does a driver take over, speed it up? So you're maintaining headways, not making these big trade-offs between service and being able to demonstrate the technology, um, as a, as a truly level four capability. Um, but it, it should, it, we are expecting it will be able to meet the speed limit. That was a requirement, um, when we went in on the grant. Um, and we put this proposal together. We committed to that, and we we expect to deliver on it. So, I when one gets on a bus from time to time, someone may show up who is in a wheelchair, or they might want to get their bicycle on the bus. What is how is that handled? 
So with this particular service, it's platform boarding. So most bus rapid transit systems in the U.S., and this is where you start to get, you know, kind of this parallel with light rail. And there aren't that many systems in the U.S. that actually have this done properly. It's it's growing in popularity as an alternative to rail, um, but it's still not as ubiquitous as you would see it in, in Latin America, Europe, or East Asia. But there is platform boarding. The buses do not kneel uh, the way a normal city bus would. They don't need to deploy a ramp uh, for wheelchair passengers or um, you know any sort of passenger with um, a physical impairment or aged passengers, et cetera. Um, there's a platform. They're supposed to dock within a certain tolerance, you know, three to four inches. Now, this is where we think the automation is actually going to substantially improve service because drivers are really challenged to meet that precision docking requirement. I'll give you an example. I was in Indianapolis uh, a little more than two years ago. They had just debuted their Indigo Red Line. It's another bus rapid transit service with, with platform boarding. And they use those 60-foot articulated buses. And I was sitting kind of toward the back. And you watch as the bus pulls up and you end up with it sometimes full foot platform gaps, which if you're disabled or, or you're in a wheelchair, like you're going to have a lot of issues. It creates an ADA non-compliant, Americans with Disability Act, non-compliant situation. So drivers, a lot of times, will either have to back up and, and redo their approach, uh, or they'll have to deploy a steel ramp to bridge the gap, literally. Uh, and we expect that with automated buses, you know, we are centering this proposal also on the precision docking capability. So it can do that every single time with absolute precision within, you know, three to four inches, um, exactly where it needs to be. Uh, it's the repetitive nature of this uh, that we think automation presents a huge advantage over over human driving. So what is the uh, situation in terms of remote guidance or teleoperation? And if something happens and it cannot, the vehicle cannot proceed. So we, we, we're not doing teleops. Uh, there will be a safety driver behind the wheel at all times. So going back to what I said about platooning, uh, there will not be empty driver's seats in follower vehicles. This is a demonstration of capabilities. It is not intended to be the end state uh, of this type of service. Um, so there will be a safety driver on board. They will obviously have to take over when the vehicle enters that downtown Hartford loop, uh, which will be in mixed traffic. And they will have to take over in case of any sort of disengagement that, you know, we don't expect, but you always have to be prepared for it. Unauthorized access of other vehicles. It does happen from time to time, you know, and you know, we're expecting that animals, you know, may intrude on the service, you know, and in, in, into the guideway. Um, you know, the vehicle will have its its uh, disengagement and, and minimal risk condition, uh, and then the driver can take over. Uh, you mentioned end state, so uh, this is a demonstration project. But what is the let's the demonstration ends? Uh, maybe you could comment on when that happens, and then where do you go from there? I mean, is the intention to get to some sort of deployment? Well, so we're actually. When I say demonstration, um, you know, there's there's no intent to actually decommission the vehicles after the full year. They intend to 
the Connecticut Department of Transportation intends to continue to keep these in service beyond the one year demonstration, quote unquote, demonstration period. So, you know, what, what I mean by demonstration is that ultimately we expect follow on activities, you know, whether they pursue additional grants, uh, whether other agencies looking to replicate this want to take it a step further. Um, there are certain features, you know, getting the vehicle from the CT fast track to the depot, doing automated parking with these buses, which is another big value proposition for automating, you know, or, or for automating transit buses, uh, you know, covering the downtown Hartford loop. You know, those are sorts of things we've already identified as possible next steps, but we are very careful to not try and bite off too much because what we are doing is truly the first of its kind in North America, at least, uh, you know, and, and being able to demonstrate it with what we're planning, we think will be impressive enough to um, show real progress for the industry. Yeah. Um, so I want to just in the context, and you've mentioned like a couple of, of different examples of where um, the automation is going to add value on something, but let's specifically to to this kind of, you know, trunk route, sort of high volume, sort of light rail alternative kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I so one of the things I learned recently is I didn't realize like what a huge uh, percentage of of like the increase of costs um, really are tied to to uh, uh, like wages and salaries and stuff um, in transit. Like I, I that was eye-opening for me. It's not something I paid attention to, but you know, you're, you, you know, you're keeping, you know, a, a human in each vehicle um, at all t- or in, in at least one vehicle at all times. Um, so where is the, the additional, you know, the value going to come from to kind of pay for the, the automation here? So let me, let me just make it clear. We do not intend to, you know, pave a path, so to speak, for removing a driver altogether. We think because a transit bus driver does so much more beyond just driving a vehicle, they help with wayfinding. They help passengers in wheelchairs. They have to strap them in. Um, they provide onboard security. You know, we've taken the approach that, well, if you've got the driver on board already, you know, what do we really need to automate to make this a useful use case uh, for transit automation? So I already talked about platooning. I've talked about the precision docking piece, which, you know, there are time savings there from drivers not having to redo things or have to provide extra assistance. Uh, There's also potential damages averted from buses colliding with platforms, which does happen from time to time. Um, The other big thing that I haven't hit on yet is energy efficiency. Uh, And it's something that, you know, at, at CTE, you know, we're placing, that's our primary interest in doing this. Um, you know, Connecticut DOT has clear operational value propositions they're targeting. For us, it's the energy efficiency piece because, uh, and, and I know I talked a little bit about this on uh, in that PAVE um, panel last month, but, you know, the heavier the vehicle, the more impact you're going to see from driver behavior on a battery electric vehicle. So as we go zero emissions, particularly as we go to battery electric technologies and range becomes a massive consideration, being able to automate some of the core driving functions promises to save a lot of energy um, that can be reinvested in in the range of the vehicle, so to speak. So, um, you know, you're maybe automating 90% of the driving task, 10% stays with the driver for these mixed use scenarios. Um, and they're still providing all the other functions that they would normally provide. Uh, they're not getting their wages reduced, 
yeah, the idea here is you need to show that there's real value. And I'll also just say some folks came into this industry right out of the gate saying, well, labor costs are 40 or 50% of a transit agency's operating expenses. So if we can just automate the bus, you know, and get rid of the drivers, you know, then we can add that many more buses to the service without thinking about a, how hard that is to do and how far away that is from being a realistic uh, possibility. And then secondly, what organized labor's response to that would be, which has not been so favorable. So we at CT, we've actually been working with uh, organized labor in DC um, on a you know, very collaborative approach to making sure that you know, we're investing in the technology in ways that provide value on the energy efficiency side, on the accessibility side, on the safety side, uh, that doesn't impact a driver whatsoever. Um, one last thing I'll add in the yard, being able to park buses really close together, uh, and maybe being able to automate some of the charging, uh, as we see increasing move toward electrification and more charge management. You're not just plugging in, you're not just, uh, you know, plugging in a, a gas pump, CNG pump or a diesel pump for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, these are two, three hour charging processes at times. And that's more staff that you have to maintain on site. Uh, to manage that stuff. Being able to automate all this stuff is ultimately going to uh, save significant capital costs for the transit agencies. Um, and so those are the areas we're trying to provide value. Sorry, go ahead, Kirsten. Oh, yeah. Uh, as far as this demonstration right now, uh, they're not, you're not using electric buses though, correct? They are. Oh, they are. Okay. Um, so how has that, um, have you, what type of energy efficiency do you expect to gain um, sort of the previous way to now this demonstration way? Like, have you been able to measure that or do you have any projections of, of what those gains might be? Yeah. So we, we expect, and I can't share specifics in terms of what the uh, compute and, and sensor load will be. I mean, we, we fully expect that there will be a cost uh, from the LIDAR cameras, et cetera. Um, and I'm sure Alex has seen some of this from the Argo world. Um, so there, there is a real cost there, but we expect that because for the factors I just talked about with driver, here's the other thing, buses and trucks, you have so much turnover with operators in this industry. Uh, you know, everyone's got a CDL, but you know, the average, you know, lifespan in the industry of these guys is in some case it's measured in months. So you've got constant churn and very experienced drivers are really good at, at um, you know, being good on the accelerator and being good on the brakes. And with electric buses and electric trucks, you've got a regenerative braking capability, so you want to maximize that. Uh, and, and when they're really hard on the pedals that have a lead foot problem, uh, that significantly saps the range of the vehicle. So at CTE, we've supported, uh, at this point, it's more than 70 uh, battery electric bus deployments throughout the country, all environments, all topographies. And we have seen massive variance just on the driver side, uh, you know, not controlling for the driver of the vehicle, but controlling for everything else, uh, up to 45% variance, you know, where maybe a really good driver who maximizes use of that regenerative braking can get you an extra 20% of, of your range, um, you know, extra 20% energy efficiency. And then maybe a really bad driver uh, who's really heavy on, on the pedals can cost 
anywhere from 20 to 30%, 20-25%. So being able to just standardize that for starters, not even take away the efficiency gains, just being able to say, we know what this is going to do every single time out within 2 to 3%. All of a sudden, when you plan as a fleet for the quote-unquote worst-case scenario, which is you know, the maximum energy consumption that you need to complete your duty cycle. Um, being able to plan around that is, is a huge benefit, um, as we'll see more and more as, as fleet operators um, start adopting uh, battery electric vehicles. And then there's the actual efficiency gains, which we expect will be more. Um, and we're, we're trying to measure that as part of this project to try and understand what the uh, delta there is between what we gain versus what it costs in sensor and compute load. Are there, um, what's the desire on the city side or the transit agency side? I mean, are you, do you have people like, you know, storming your door and knocking it down to try this out? Or is it a lot of hesitancy? Where is the, on the transit agency side, like the interest to do this type of thing? If you think about this in terms of the uh, the hype cycle, you know we've been the transit industry has been a, a couple years I think behind on the curve where folks really st- yeah, maybe peak hype in the AV space broadly was what 2016 2017 and then 2018 things sort of came crashing down. The real interest started picking up here in 2018 2019. And a lot of agencies did engage thinking, my labor costs are really high. I've got these consultants telling me that they can put together these programs that can get me funding for uh, doing automated buses. And you know, if we can eliminate the driver, we can save all of these costs and solve all these problems. And they didn't really understand the technology at a deep enough level to recognize, again, how far away that was. And also what the labor response to that sort of thinking would be. So we've collectively taken a step back as an industry, I think, in a smart way. And, you know, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we ever entered a proper trough of disillusionment, but, you know, I think we're on that slope of enlightenment now uh, coming out of the trough uh, where we're starting to think smartly about what those applications are. And you're seeing transit agencies engage uh, more wisely. Uh, about where they would like to see this. Maybe it's more in the yard where, as again, I said, there are capital cost savings uh, and it's a much easier environment to automate. You don't have to worry about, you know, mixed mixed uh, vehicle traffic on roads uh, or mapping, you know, super complex environments. So I think that's where the conversation is starting to turn. And I think some of these other agencies that are, already working with BRT, bus rapid transit systems, uh, those are the ones that have shown the most interest because they realize they have assets that they can uh, leverage to be an early adopter. Uh, Alex, Ned, are we on the yeah. enlightenment area era? I was just thinking about that. <laughs> um, you know, there was a column the other day by... Uh, a friend of Atonicast, uh, Ashley Nunez, who's been on, who is you know very bearish on AV in general, and and his column, I've heard him speak, I've heard him debate Chris Ermson. Uh, his column, I think the headline was um, "The Era of Self Driving Is Over" or something, some variant of that, and it it seems to me like the 
extreme positions, pro and and con on AV. I'm hoping they're they're we're coming out of the trough of the dissolution, but I feel like we're not quite out of it because the the hardcore Tesla stands are still telling us that full self driving is two weeks away, and then the hardcore uh, anti AV folks are saying this can't work technologically, and even if it does, there's no business case for it. It just seems clear to me that neither of those positions are true, but the, the media narrative is, has not stopped oscillating between these two points. Maybe we've moved a little bit forward. Uh, that you have traction for this, Nathaniel, is it's a good sign, I hope, um, but it's frustrating. I mean, you, you can't counter it all except by showing results. For me, the big one is to see your, your test actually function in the winter. Because this is that's the big one for the people in the Northeast. A lot of people ask when autonomy is going to arrive and then where it's going to go. It, it has to get to eventually to north, northern states and northeastern high density locations. So I look forward to seeing you do that. Well, and, and one other thing on that, real quick, Alex. I mean, and this is where I'm talking about with fixed route versus variable route or or more on demand systems. When you have a fixed guideway which is well maintained. And, and you're talking about snow plowing nine miles versus an entire grid of city streets. It's a much, much easier lift. It's also a different definition of infrastructure. When people say, oh, autonomous vehicles need infrastructure. Well, my, I've always said, long before I was at Argo, it'd be nice if we could have that infrastructure. But what would that infrastructure actually look like? In, what would it need to look like to enable miles that matter? And the miles that matter in a lot of cases are this is what you're doing. So the infrastructure that AVs or some, a lot of AVs are going to need is as simple as a snowplow for sure. Yeah. I think to answer, like my answer to Kirsten's question is, I mean, I think we are still um, in the, we're not, you know, I mean, obviously any kind of big trend is going to be unevenly distributed. Right. And, and I think like, as Alex mentioned, the fact that Tesla is still able to act like it's 2016 shows that I think we have more disillusionment ahead of us, uh, potentially a lot more. Um, and, but like, to me, I think, you know, this project that Nathaniel has been describing is exactly what I imagine in terms of the, the slope of enlightenment, because I think the slope of enlightenment has to be, I think one of the big misconceptions about the whole hype cycle is that like, you know, that, that coming out of the trough of delusionment, uh, disillusionment is like a reversion to sort of where we were in the hype era, but that's not true at all. Um, and in fact, oftentimes it's really different. And so like the hype was all around sort of self-driving cars, which is, which is why I sort of that for, for a lot of people still, that's another one of those things that I think needs to go away. Um, that, that, that sort of sense that anytime you hear AV, you just think automatically it's a car, just like any other car that, that drives itself. You can, that you can buy. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, you know, that, that may well be something, right. I mean, mobilized talking about having that in 2025, it may be a thing that actually happens, but but the reality is, is that AVs are a whole lot of other things as well. And like, this is a very, um, first of all, it, it, it's not just a car, right? It's a bus, it's transit, it's improving something that we have to spend a lot of money on anyway. Why, why wouldn't we make it more efficient? But then also it's, it's you know, rather than just sort of like, we're going to build the most sophisticated technology possible so that it can maybe do everything, but then kind of having that, that focus problem that you see at some AV companies, um, this is just like, look, you know, we're going to create a domain you know, through infrastructure um, and, and just the use case 
that where where we can actually do this, where we don't need to have a, a system that can do everything. All it needs to be able to do is do something within this domain. And I think that when people understand that a like there are lots of applications to this that that they aren't necessarily thinking of, um, and that AV sort of encompasses you know everything from you know agriculture and mining to to bus transit, you know transit and um, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but also that like understanding that that the point of an AV is not it's not one technological problem that you're going to solve. And then when you solve it, you can just make everything autonomous. Every AV is, is intimately tied to the domain that it's going to operate in. Like these are the things that, that I look for people to understand more, you know, in order to have the confidence that we are going to move to this level of enlightenment, because that's the point at which your relationship changes with the technology from being this magical thing that's going to solve all of our problems to just like a real world tool that, you know, within the certain circumstances, it, it can be used well to make things better and and that's a fundamental shift in the relationship that happens through that like process of going through the the hype cycle right well and then sorry Nathaniel but just to to jump on that it's not just that it's could be broadly adopted right but then the, the cost factor and so you know I think that the reason why autonomous vehicles have been so hyped, it's not just that it's this car, but it's oftentimes this luxury or premium version. It's seemed inaccessible. And also there are real questions about like robo taxis in cars adding to more traffic. So it doesn't really please the uh, urban planners, right? Or, um, you know, that end. This, if you're making something more efficient, cost efficient, and run on time, it hits a greater number of people. It's accessible to more people, right? But also it's attractive because on the city side, on the budget side, they can argue for it, right? Like this is actually reducing your taxes or this is a more efficient way. And and that to me seems like one of those things where it can attract both, you know, various political, um, you know, viewpoints when you see something that is, Applying technology that hits the most people or, you know, is accessible to the most people um, saves, you know, money is more efficient. And then it also has, you know, this, this, the electrification component, it sort of ticks all the boxes. Right. Um, And that's where I think that kind of agreeing with Alex and Ed, but just the finer point on the financial side, that enlightenment point is when it hits that accessibility and like talk taxpayer um, point too. So, so let me throw another wrinkle in here too. Beyond just the financial return on investment, you see a lot of talk in the transit industry as the conversation in DC now has shifted um, toward really investing more in public and making it truly public transit. Stop trying to make it fend for itself in terms of financial return on investment. You're seeing lots of agencies experimenting uh, with fare free transit, you're seeing movement in DC to try and push that. And fundamentally, you know, if you're moving to fare free, then you're throwing cost out the window altogether. It just becomes about what delivers the most value to, you know, broad value, not necessarily financial value, but most value to our constituents. And, you know, I, I do believe this will save costs for operators in the long term. But even if it doesn't, if it delivers on the safety and the accessibility and even some of the on-time performance metrics, customer experience metrics, 
and it, it's an incremental cost of, I don't know, 50, 100,000, $150,000 per vehicle amortized over a 12 year life of a vehicle. Um, that may be worth it. Agencies may decide, you know what, that's worth the extra investment, especially because my true alternative isn't another bus. It's building a, it's a really expensive light rail system, uh, which, as you pointed out earlier, Kirsten, you know, that's kind of the go to right now um, for, for this type of service. Yeah, light rail just politically has immediate challenges. Um, and and it they are tend to be a longer term project. So if you can achieve the same efficiency without tearing up a road and adding, you know, the infrastructure piece to it, it really starts to look very compelling. Um, and then when you add that electrification component as well, like I could see why that if a city is looking at two choices, um, why why the automated bus looks a lot more attractive and certainly a lot cheaper. What are you doing, Nathaniel, about the uh, the charging component? So for this route, we're expecting it can do a full depot charge. One of the value propositions that I see for automation in the long term is on-route charging. Uh, it's still immature technology. It's commercial technology. You know, We've got it deployed both conductive with these big overhang pantograph chargers that you know, come down and deploy a, um, yeah, deploy a pantograph and it's uh, a 450 or 350 to 450 kilowatt charge, really super fast charge uh, while buses are stop or layovers or even the inductive charge pads, which I think, you know, tends to capture the imagination a little bit more, especially in the light vehicle space. People talk about charging roads and stuff like that. Uh the, the problem with both technologies is precise alignment. So with the, well, one of the problems with the technologies is precise alignment, where with a, with a pantograph system, if you don't come within, I don't know, six inches uh, on either side of that, of that arm going down to the bus, uh, it won't take a charge at all. And again, humans are not good at doing the super precise alignment piece of this. With inductive charging, any variance that you get from the charge pad, and by inductive, I mean wireless for, for folks who don't uh, automatically make that association. The more, the, the more variance you have from the charge pad, you know, inches, you start to see a decrease in charge efficiency. So if, again, if you're a fleet and you're expecting to pick up a certain percentage of your uh, charging you know, for a duty cycle, um, the overall route for the day, the overall schedule for the day. If you're expecting to pick up a certain percentage of that on route from one of these two methods and you're having trouble because your drivers aren't aligning properly, that's a big problem. And that's an impediment and a barrier to adoption. Uh, and automation can, you know, kind of solve that friction. Yeah. So for this, for this, for, for, to answer your question, sorry, Alex, for this particular project, there will not be on route charging, but we do work with a lot of on route charging systems. Um, I wanted to get uh, your take on on sort of the whole low speed shuttle phenomena. You've mentioned it a couple of times now. Um, I, you certainly have have made some tweets about it. Um, I have some some spicy takes, and um, I was hoping you might be able to just kind of share that with folks because that is and and just if you can confirm my perception is that a lot of the earliest sort of work that that um, transit agencies have done with AVs have mostly been around these. 
And it seems like it's mostly just been because that's what's available. You've had companies like Navia like out trying to to sell, you know, cities or or even corporate campuses or things like that. So like and and so that's been going on for a couple of years now. I guess is is that market still healthy? Like is you know what what's been learned from some of those early deployments? Do you see like more more low speed shuttles in our future? Uh, that that submarket's definitely in the trough of disillusionment. Uh, they came out of the gate strong, and, and that goes you know past that goes even before AVs really went mainstream in the U.S. Europe was experimenting with I think it was City Mobile City Mobile Two. Yeah, you know, they had I think Navia or Easy Mile shuttles that they were taking on a road trip or you know a road show around all these different European cities, testing them in different environments. And then that those two companies made it to the U.S. and you had May Mobility, Optimus Ride, all these others crop up that were doing a similar model. Uh, and it, no public agency is going to admit this publicly. Um, yeah, they'll say they learned lessons and that you know they got more people exposed to the technology, and that's going to ultimately accelerate adoption. But I think a lot of them regret it. Um, you know, they're not that expensive of pilots, but they definitely you know, a lot of them wasted hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million bucks for, you know, six month, one year pilots. Um, and, and ultimately what they're doing is they're subsidizing the development of that technology because VCs aren't pumping the billions into it. So there may be long-term viability for those platforms. I don't want to be too dismissive, certainly on corporate campuses where you're serving a very specific customer set or in an amusement park or Vegas, you know, convention, uh, authority tourist environment rather than doing, you know, cars and tunnels, you do stuff like this. Um, th- there may be value there, but for public transit, it's going to be really tough uh, without having a- an operator on board uh, to provide passenger assistance, even taking away the labor, organized labor frictions. And so once you have a driver on board, uh, you know, to help with passengers, you start to ask, well, what's the point? You know, why, why are we, you know, doing these smaller capacity vehicles? Um, also, why not just a golf cart or better sidewalks? Because they're all going at 15 miles, 20 miles an hour. And, and again, that's like early stages. Eventually, they'll get to higher speeds. They'll get to more sophisticated deployment environments. Uh, and maybe there are AI features that get passengers, uh, the service they need in ways that you can add service and not replace service, but add service and, and not have drivers involved. Um, I just don't see it in anything resembling a short term. Yeah. So, so you mentioned something, so I, I have to ask you, I mean, you're a, you're a transit expert, specifically zero emission transit expert, uh, mostly in larger, larger vehicles, but you know, you mentioned the 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 Teslas and tunnels thing, and like to me, it just seems so. Yeah, it's like emblematic of like you know Elon Musk and his whole thing, but also like you know we're in an interesting time for public transit where there is a you know kind of actually similar to cars in a way where there's all this like anticipation and excitement about future you know what what this could be in the future, um, and you know sometimes that leads to really cool you know productive. Uh, projects like the one you've been uh, working on and describing today, uh, and sometimes it, it, you know, that that impulse gives rise to things that are new, they're novel, they're different, but they're also, you know, haven't been done before for for good reasons. 
And to me, the the Teslas and tunnels, the, the Las Vegas loop thing, I mean, that kind of seems to be like one of the classic examples of that. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are uh, on on that specific concept. So what, what Elon is doing, it has been done before, right? We've got personal rapid transit or PRT systems, you know, all over the world dating back to the 19, what, 60s or 70s when West Virginia built its PRT system, University of West Virginia. Uh, you've got the you know, Heathrow Airport has autonomous pods you know, that go between a parking lot and a terminal, I think. And it's the fu- same fundamental concept. And they don't have high passenger capacity. They're tourist attractions. They're not designed to be the most efficient transit systems. They're there for pizzazz and really nothing else. And so I I do roll my eyes at any of these PRT systems. Everyone thinks they're going to be able to reinvent it because people like personalized vehicles. They don't have to share space with the masses. Uh, You know, they can get more, you know, not just not just having to not share spaces with the masses, but not have to go where the masses are going. So talking about point to point transportation, uh, you'll see a lot of these public rapid PRT proponents or uh, even inventors talking about how they can deliver you from anywhere to anywhere in a city uh, as fast and much cheaper than public transit. But ultimately mass transit is about scale. It's about efficiencies at scale it's about people ultimately connecting uh, to the transit system by walking or biking, and which is the most efficient, right? They're taking up the least amount of space. If everybody does a park and ride, you're still having tons of cars piling into a very enclosed space. And so the more vehicles you have to put out there to deliver the same amount of service, it just creates inefficiencies. And it's also not particularly cost effective either. Um, I can think of no better way to end this discussion than Tesla and tunnels. And I can't wait to be with you all and test it in person uh, this January. Nathaniel, you'll have to come out and and then we can have a maybe we'll have to tape it live and have that experience. Um, but thanks again, Nathaniel, for coming and joining. It was super interesting. And um, Ed and Alex, of course. And uh, to our audience, thank you for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. Cast.